This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Gotham TV podcast. This is episode 43 of the podcast about the hit show Gotham and the connected DC universe. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi, and I'm one of your other hosts, John. And we're here to talk about Gotham episode 18, Everyone Has a Cobblepot. Do you have a cobblepot, John? Yes, and it's very itchy at the moment. <laughs> but not really. Not really. And, and not either in the sense that Harvey Bullock and actually Jim Gordon have. I have never... Tried to kill one, a cobblepot, no. a person, or indeed attempted to, or been successful in. So, no, I don't think I have a cobblepot, um, but I also thought it may be referencing something else. Okay. <laughs> excellent, excellent. But do you have a cobblepot? I've never had a cobblepot, no, but I'd like one, especially those really cute penguin versions of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean one of the action figures that's uh, being released yeah. as well? Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm slightly dubious about the quality of them, personally. Um, yeah. But I find action figures that try and replicate the human form, you know, it's very difficult to, to get it right. Sometimes I just find statues of actual, real-life uh, people living, breathing, sometimes just look really strange and... Unfortunately, I felt these did look slightly strange. However, though, I did think Penguins um, or Oswald Cobblepot's one was by far and away the best. Yeah, so this, is, this is the three action figures. Uh, Cameron Beacondova as Selena Kyle, Robin Lord Taylor as uh, Oswald Cobblepot, and Ben McKenzie's version of Jim Gordon, all three being released this summer for about $20. That's right, isn't that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's a there's also a statue of Ben McKenzie's Jim Gordon being released for a lot more expensive, about a hundred quid, and that's uh, that's looks much more like the Jim Gordon that we know and love from uh, from Gotham. Definitely, but I'm digressing, yeah. and in fairness, I'm probably going to just digress a slight bit more for everyone who is um, listening to Gotham TV podcast is watching Gotham. Uh, we also have a sister podcast, Defenders TV podcast, which actually looks at the Marvel, you know, don't boo or hiss at this stage, but it looks <laughs> at the Marvel um, universe, in particular the Marvel Netflix uh, TV shows, Daredevil, which is currently playing, but also looking forward to aka Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and the Iron Fist, all moving towards the mini-series Defenders. We also do look at the Marvel connected world in that, and so we do now have our Avengers Age of Ultron review, our epic piece of reviewing, uh, myself, John, Derek, and two other people that podcast with us on the Defenders TV podcast, Irene and Chris. And we have done an our opus day, I suppose, I really, so. of uh, of podcasting. And it was released on the 23rd of April in Ireland and the UK. And it's coming in at just over two hours um, of discussion and um, chat about all our favourite things and some of the things that maybe um, we didn't quite like so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really good fun uh, chat and fun discussion and loads of, loads of spoilers. So we know it's only being released in the US uh, this week as you hear this podcast. Um, but... I think once once you've seen the movie, 
pop on over to DefendersTVPodcast.com slash iTunes, and you'll be able to pick up our review of Avengers Age of Ultron. It's well worth a listen, I think. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of which as well, um, remember you can find us at GothamTVPodcast.com forward slash iTunes. You can also find us on any other good podcast catchers, such as Stitcher, Player FM. You can follow us on Twitter at GothamTVPodcast.com. And of course, you can find us on Google Plus and Facebook. Just search Gotham TV Podcast and follow us there, like our page, and interact with us there. And as we're getting close to the end of the season of Gotham, we just wanted to reiterate and repeat about our competition uh, to win a signed Penguin print by Christopher Ominga. Uh, and also the first five issues of Gotham by Midnight featuring artwork by Ben Templesmith, one of our favorite artists. Uh, all you need to do is send us in some feedback through Twitter, Facebook, through our email address, which is feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. And if we discuss it on the show, you go into the hat and on the final uh, episode, review show that we do we'll pick out a, a winner anywhere across the world and send them the nice prize pack exactly it's open to everyone and of course if you leave a review for us on itunes you will also enter into the draw as that's one of the best ways and um, to share our podcast uh, with other people through reviewing on itunes so get those thoughts and comments coming in and uh, we can't wait to to get them Mm-hmm. And with that, I think we're into our review for Everyone Has a Cobblepot. Oh, mine started up again. So episode 18 of Gotham, Everyone Has a Cobblepot, was directed by Bill Eagles, who's directed previous episodes of Gotham, and also written by Megan Moiston-Brown, uh, who wrote Welcome Back, Jim Gordon. We spoke about it in the episode that that was her first episode of Gotham, her first real episode of TV, and now she gets a second episode within five, you know, so she's obviously one of the new go-to people for Gotham. And Welcome Back, Jim Gordon was actually one of my um, favourites. It, it really was good. It reminded me very much of Gotham Central. So I was looking forward to this episode, definitely. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Do you want to give us your synopsis to give us some detail on what we're talking about? Alfred wakes up and begins to recover from the wounds inflicted by best mate, Reggie, who Bruce now believes to be the key to the dodgy goings-on at Wayne Enterprises. At the same time, Flass has the charges against him dropped by Commissioner Loeb after a GCPD witness comes forward to exonerate him. However, as Jim investigates Flass's release, it transpires that the witness was forced to give evidence by the dangerous and corrupt Loeb, who holds files on all the GCPD staff containing sensitive information and all their dirty little secrets. Elsewhere, at Dr. Dolmacher's facility, Fish finally meets the man himself and appears to join forces with him as she rises to senior management. Dolmaka is confident of Fish's loyalty as she seemingly betrays her previous allegiance to the prisoners and of course because the facility is shown to be located on a frozen, barren and windswept island far away from Gotham. Meanwhile, aided by Oswald, Jim's very own cobblepot, Harvey, Bullock and Jim make their way to a remote farm run by Margie and her husband in an attempt to get Loeb's secret files, but stumble upon a bigger, darker, more crazy secret that Jim uses as leverage against Commissioner Loeb himself. Very 
very detailed synopsis well done John yeah this is another one that felt like uh, Batman Year One felt like that kind of character of Commissioner Lowe being really developed in this episode as a uh, as a really central and corrupt guy who wants to take out Jim who's not on side with his plan uh, really like this episode. Yeah, big time. The sort of collaboration between Flass and uh, Loeb in in this episode w- was great, and I loved the whole theme that it was very much all about people's secrets being discovered or secrets, and um, such as even Oswald's and um, from from Falcone and Maroney being kept. Uh, away from them, all these secrets uh, was seemed to be the theme of this episode, and mm-hmm. I I really liked that. I thought it added um, a lot. We even see sort of Harvey's secret uh, as well. So this was great. I I thought it was a really nice episode. It it really had a, a sneaky, secrety little theme running through it, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. With that, let's crack into our top five case points for this episode. Uh, John, do you want to give us your first point? Yeah, well, running with the theme of secrets, it was Harvey Bullock's secret. Um, mm-hmm. And in a sense, then, his redemption from his secret and his lie. But firstly, it was the secret that is contained within Commissioner Loeb's files that we find out. He's, he's obviously got his cobble pot, which um, he understands what Jim had to go through because he had to do that himself. But in this sense, he killed the person. Yeah. He dumped the body. The The person was gotten rid of. So he's not in the fortunate position that Jim is where his Cobblepot ultimately didn't die. This huge secret of which Loeb knows everything about and which forces Harvey to be a witness um, in favour and for Flats in order to exonerate him. Yeah. And I just thought that this really nicely just filled out Harvey Bullock's character so much. It it felt like a bit of the spirit of the goat to me, where it really added something to Harvey's uh, character, to some of his demeanour. And he was quite... um, He was much more subdued in some extent in this episode. It was much more the serious Harvey Bullock rather than the the comedy Harvey Bullock. And I really, really liked that. Um, But I just thought... It really neatly um, sort of connected Jim and Harvey together because they've both got this one thing in common. And and I, I love that. Um, anything to do with Harvey Bullock, I really like. And I especially like these episodes that really get into the psyche of Harvey Bullock because mm-hmm. he is complex. He, you know, on the face of it, comes across as uncaring. He comes across as maybe even corrupt to some people. But actually, underneath that, he is pretty loyal to his partner. He does want to see the bad guys get caught, but he is also um, caught a bit between a rock and a hard place in relation to some of the connections he's had with mobsters and, and crime lords and what he's had to do. And, you know, this secret... Um, you can see angers Jim when he finally finds out that it was Harvey who um, helped Flass get released and get the, the, the charges dropped. But then what infuriates Jim even more is the connection to Commissioner Loeb. You know, these two have been like two bulls and um, butting heads. They really have, you know. So this is just simply a red rag for Jim Gordon as yeah. soon as Commissioner Loeb gets um, 
gets a mention. And I, I really liked it. I thought then as well the redemption that occurs for Harvey Bullock were, you know, he's got Griggs, Detective Griggs, hanging out the car whilst it, it's speeding along the road in the, yeah. in, in the ice and snow and slush. I thought that was just, that was great. And, um, you know, that was that was dark comedy Harvey Bullock for me and brilliant. Loved it. Loved it. Harvey Bullock in this episode, yeah. really did. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I also li- really liked the setup of, from the title of the episode, that everyone has a cobblepot. And um, I was wondering what that meant months ago when I saw the title come up, and uh, the idea that Harvey uses this to describe that everybody has a secret that Loeb holds over their head. You know, he's fully aware now that uh, that Jim didn't kill Oswald. Obviously, uh, in the first episode, he took took him a long time to come around to the idea that Jim didn't kill Oswald. And um, and isn't Jim lucky that he didn't because Loeb would be holding that over Jim now. Jim's still the incorruptible one. Jim, Jim is still the one that the only one that Loeb doesn't have something on. Therefore, he can go and challenge Loeb uh, for the stuff that he's been doing for 20 years now. Essentially, it's the way it's described that Griggs was uh, his former partner um, and he had something hold, that he was holding over him for this long as well. You know, he's been constantly building up his, uh, I suppose, his files on everybody who worked with the GCPD and everybody else, and using this against them to further his career, essentially. And now Jim is on the warpath. Um, really interesting element to it was that what he finds out from Grigg is that not only is Loeb corrupt, he's also working with Falcone. So he's directly working with the biggest nemesis on the show as well. So that was Yeah, that was a big reveal, actually, that mm. Commissioner Loeb is so entwined with Falcone. We've seen that with the mayor already. Yeah. But with Commissioner Loeb, it's it's not really been identified that he was intrinsically that linked with Falcone. Mm. He obviously recognizes maybe who his political masters are, but this is a really cozy relationship, and um, just as cozy uh, as the relationship that the mayor had with him were, um, as we'll see later with um you know, were Loeb's files maybe kept? Mm-hmm. Um, Jim and Harvey think that that's in a Falcone sort of safe house. Yeah. But there is a really lot of dodgy links here between between Commissioner Loeb and, and Falcone. Yeah. I think the other thing is Harvey does say half the cops on the force have got a cobble pot as well. Yeah. And I, I like the way he describes how this is the source of all his power, i.e. Commissioner Loeb. I thought it was a really interesting uh, way of describing it, almost like it was a superpower. That yeah. He has all this information. It's like he's Information Man or something like that. Um, <laughs> the worst superhero in Gotham. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And we have a great line as well from Jim Gordon, as you say. He is the incorruptible one. Here it is. Go ahead, arrest me, but don't stop there. Half the cops on the GCPD have a cobble pot. And Loeb has the goods on all of them. That is what Loeb does. Well, it ends now. Jim, hey, going after Flass was bad enough. Going after Loeb is suicide, plain and simple. So what? I'm supposed to stay quiet, fall in line like the rest of you? That would be a good idea. The day I do that is the day I quit being a cop. And I love this line because... It's after Harvey has been explaining everything. And, you know, Harvey has essentially asked him to fall in line like everyone else does. Mm-hmm. And it, it just adds to this incorruptibleness of Jim Gordon. Yes, he makes uh, bad choices sometimes, as we'll see even later on in this episode. Mm-hmm. But 
he doesn't have too much over him, if anything, that Loeb can use. And that's why Loeb is at loggerheads with Jim. And Jim is at loggerheads with Loeb because of the sneakiness of his character. And obviously that tight relationship with Flask because I think he's um, nominating him for a... Uh, a job as the head of the police union. That's right. So it's really mucky and non-transparent, this whole relationship between them. And, I mean, that's great in itself, but Mm. it really just sets Jim off um, at loggerheads with Commissioner Loeb all the time. Yeah, absolutely. But just to your point about Harvey himself, um, there is also a great line from Harvey in in the episode where he essentially describes, you know, what he's been going through all these years, knowing that... Uh, he's done something that he never wanted to do in the first place, creating his his cobble pot, essentially. He says, you tell yourself, I'll just do this one bad thing. All the good things I'll do later will make up for it. But they don't. Um, you know, it's a good moment for Harvey that he essentially is saying that he did that one bad thing. He'll try He'll try his best to get back from doing that. Just that one moment of, of lapse judgment, essentially. Uh, but he's never come back from that. He's He's continued to do those one or two little bad things over time, like working with fish, I presume is what he's talking about, like helping out criminals or turning a blind eye to other cops and what Loeb is doing. And now he's saying it'll never wash. You never, If you do that one bad thing, you'll never come back from it, essentially, which I thought was a really good element for, for Harvey in this, in this episode. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Um, but... Derek, what's your first point? Uh, my first point is a continuation of my points over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I've actually spoken about Fish's story a lot more than I was expecting to. And once again, they pull it out of the bag in this episode. Um, Fish meeting Dr. Dollmaker, or the Dollmaker, um, is a great moment in this in this episode. She gets her new eyeball. Um, she now has a blue eye and a brown eye. Um, really stark contrast um, for this character really stands out, which is obviously what it's meant to do. Um but starting to kind of unravel what what the Dr. Dolmacher's plan is and what he's actually doing with all these body parts is really interesting. You know what? You know, he looks like he set up a, a kind of a, a, a surgery for high class clients. Um, but why would a high class client fly into this place so far out of the way, which is so distant from any city? It's not exactly the most well put together place. Um, it seems like a slightly cut price place for people that have maybe are old money or running out of money potentially yeah and um, that's kind of the impression that i get but particularly on fish the fact that she turns on her pa- basement crowd who've made her their leader and done everything to get her to the point of meeting dollmaker thinking that they're going to get away thinking that they're going to be released um it looks like she's turned on them um she sacrifices two of her most ardent supporters in the basement essentially just because they're on the list of dr dollmaker um I thought that was a really interesting twist. Um, obviously, it's going to play out over the next couple of weeks. But again, I'm excited by her story and excited by uh, by what's happening with Jed Pinkett Smith's character in this episode. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that she kind of wanted to be his right-hand man. And half of me was expecting, if not in this episode, somewhere along um, the line towards the end of this season, mm-hmm. Dr. Dolmacher may not be with us for season two. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this slight feeling something may happen to him, certainly because her turning on her prisoners that she had brought through to, to be this rebellious crowd yeah. against the the prison guards and against 
the people, the senior management upstairs. I thought it was really, um, it felt like a betrayal um, and it felt like something Fish wouldn't necessarily do. And in my own head, I'm thinking she is doing this in order to do what she would set up out to do which was to escape from the facility she obviously is now fully aware that she's also got to escape from an island yeah. in the middle of nowhere f- looking pretty cold snowy and miserable yeah. um but i thought it was really interesting that she took um uh, kelly um dashiel uh dashiel eves is the is the actor like he's been there in five episodes mm-hmm. he was the one that fish bonded with immediately and has kind of been her right hand man yeah. and she sacrifices him and it'll be interesting now to see whether he survives mm-hmm. or whether he is literally just cut up into parts for use with with other people yeah but um i thought this was you know odd that she behaved like that but i think it's for a higher purpose in mm-hmm. order to escape and in order to probably get her revenge on uh, Dr. Francis Dullmacher. Yeah, she essentially says at the end of the episode, essentially, or the end of her part of the episode, is that she tells them all their sacrifice means your survival. So she still sounds like to them or she's still putting forward the position to them that she's working for the the basement people, as we'll we'll call them. Um, She's still making that point, but I'm still wondering whether she's just doing all of this to get herself out and get herself away and doesn't really care about the people in the basement. Uh, It never struck me that Fish was one to to be a protector for everybody, so this is why this storyline has been so interesting to me. Um, It usually struck me that she would be the person that would fight for herself and do everything to get herself um, to the best position possible, which is now, you know, essentially the new right-hand man to uh, to Dalmacher, as you said. Yeah, or maybe Kelly, her right-hand man, is simply just being removed from the prison, and mm-hmm. maybe he will be working for her upstairs. Perhaps. I doubt that will happen, but it could be another way in which he isn't actually being sacrificed as such. But, um, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a really interesting little um, development on that story, too, yeah. definitely. Yeah, definitely. there is one element that I do want to pull out, though, because I think I wrote it in my notes about four times because I couldn't believe how bad it was. Um, the former office manager, who we saw in the last two episodes uh, dealing with, with Fish Mooney, um, and we have the reveal of his head attached to a woman's body. Um terrible cgi i thought i thought it was really awful and really stood out as it was difficult to watch purely because of how bad it was made um we did get a comment on twitter when we were watching the episode and tweeting about it we did get a comment on twitter saying at least he has good nail varnish um because <laughs> <laughs> he has these lovely red red nails that he's staring at uh, from his newly uh, his head newly attached to uh, to a young woman's body but uh, i really thought it was poor i thought it was about the level of Maybe Mars Attacks was actually Mars Attacks was probably better. Um, ten years ago, with uh, Pierce Brosnan's head being attached to a dog, um, but love that film. Uh, love I know, it. I know, but um, but yeah, I thought it was a bit of an odd choice. Um, it should have been probably something a bit more gruesome. It just felt weird and looked strange. Yeah, but it it reminded me of Mars Attacks. It also reminded me of Sally from. The Nightmare Before Christmas, Jack O'Lantern's <laughs> uh, love interest, because just because 
even the arms, the female arms and, and hands and legs, they were all stitched together as well. And yeah. it looked like Sally, who was a doll herself within that um, stop motion animation. So mm-hmm. maybe that's how bad um, the CG was that I thought maybe. it looked like stop motion animation. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, yeah, I mean, it's always difficult sometimes with CG in TV. Yeah. Sometimes it looks absolutely brilliant and looks just as good as anything you see on the big screen. And then sometimes you kind of go, ah, that was done with a TV budget. And yeah. I can see that. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's difficult to, to pull it off sometimes. Yeah. And I think maybe you're right. They just didn't pull it off here. Yeah. And some of the other CG work in, in this um, series has been really good, such as with the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. where Gerald Crane sees his wife burning you know that was really really good so um i suppose it's just how it how it falls and how it looks within the context you know yeah yeah absolutely but it doesn't take away from fisher's story i thought it was a really good story john do you want to give us your second point yeah it kind of follows on from my first and that's really Loeb's secret um mm. and both of his secrets here both the fact that He's now found to have files on on everyone containing sensitive information or their dirty laundry that he can use to bribe them. He can hold them to ransom and blackmail them um, with all these files. And I I love that notion that that's where he is. That is why he's there. And maybe even why he got promoted because he even knew stuff maybe on the mer and he said i want to buy into this i want the influence and the power and so gets promoted yeah and even as far back as when he's on the force you know this is a calculated man that you find from it he's keeping his own partner's um, information detective griggs um as well yeah. that it goes that far and deep the network that his old um, partner from when they were both detectives is also embroiled um, in into this, and I just thought that was a really nice touch. Um, it made him so calculated. It made him so powerful Definitely. in terms of running and controlling that organization, and to come up then against. Uh, Jim, like I said previously, was just a nice conflict between these two, these two men of principle. But mm-hmm. one is of a dark principle, and one is of a lighter principle in yeah. that sense, yeah. morally. Um, and I, I thought that was really good. Yeah, what I liked about it as well is that from the first moment those two characters meet, uh, Jim and Loeb, not only are they at loggerheads, but Jim has sniffed out like a good, a good detective sniffer dog. He sniffed out there's something wrong with Loeb. There's something that he doesn't like about him from the very moment they meet. You know, we, we questioned it, I think, in episode 12. We questioned Jim challenging the commissioner this uh, this ardently or this strongly over his opinions and what he did to did to Jim. After all, the mayor is the one that sent him to Arkham. Um, so the commissioner was only carrying out the mayor's orders. But Jim instantly realizes there's something wrong with this guy. And it's great to see this the story play out the way it has. It's a really good really good. Uh, end to that story arc definitely and i think then it comes to the second secret the the commissioner Loeb has as well then mm-hmm. um which is miriam Loeb. oh yeah and um, his daughter stuck up in the attic i mean it, it did remind me of the simpsons with bot's uh, <laughs> brother you know stuck up in the attic being looked after in this remote farm but to me 
um, along with Harvey Bullock, Miriam Loeb here, played by Nicole Tom, mm-hmm. was absolutely fantastic in all her kooky craziness, but also then the switch of her from from this kind of childlike craziness and, and innocence, despite all that, to a a a, a, a sudden a darkness that came across her as she talks about murdering um, her mother because she didn't let her speak, I think, or, or sing. It was her t- turn to sing. That's right. And that, to me, that switch um, back and forth between childlike innocence and this murderous adult um, with, with a real still burning passion for what she did was fantastic i just absolutely loved it and this was Loeb's um other secret which i thought was absolutely great and i just loved her whole interaction with with harvey bullock and jim gordon and then obviously there was her amazing little uh, interaction with the penguin we can hear it here what's it made of bones Starlings, they, uh, they land on my windowsill, and you can catch them if you're really silent and still. And I can be really silent and still. Silent as a mouse. Then what do you do? the back of their heads I just press down my thumb it makes like a a popping noise well a deal's a deal you have to let me in there who's he he looks just like a bird I love birds Oh yeah, so that's her That's her necklace made from starlings uh, that she's talking about there where it's uh, catching them and crushing their necks just at the back of the head and you wonder what she'll do to the penguin because he also looks like a bird. Um, I was, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I was just there thinking, run penguin, run. <laughs> it was just the eyes as well of, of Nicole Tom as she kind of, it was like this childlike excitement that... Um, Oh look, here's another bird that I can snap the neck and make into <laughs> some jewellery and stuff. You know, it's like the latest in in bog standard bone jewellery by Miriam Loeb. You yeah. know, uh, a penguin accessory. Uh, it was just so so good in all its craziness. And this, along with another aspect, which I think is one of your points actually, Dave. Mm-hmm. But this to me just reminded me of of the Simpsons with, with Bart Simpson's other brother, Hugo, up in in the attic being looked after. Um, fed you know, fish up, heads. Yeah, man. being fed fish heads and crazy other stuff, um, yeah. unbeknownst to everyone else. And I loved um, Loeb's secret here. I, I, I just loved what what comes around, what goes around, comes around, and that actually maybe he learned from from personal experience that everyone does have a dirty little secret. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Nicole Thomas is fantastic in this. I'm hoping that we get to see a bit more of her. I'd like to maybe see if they tone back just that crazy aspect that she wants to kill people. Perhaps she could become 
the Penguin's girlfriend, possibly in a season two or something like that. She could potentially have a relationship there. Yes, yeah, she's a little bit crazy right now, but uh, but yeah, I kind of I kind of like her her just her little relationship with Penguin there. Do you think she could be a Harley Quinn? Maybe. maybe. I mean, could be the Penguin's Harley Quinn. Maybe he could. She could be his sidekick. But there's definitely enough of the makeup in her uh, in her as a character that she could become. Um, she could become someone very attached to the Penguin who will do anything for him, perhaps. Yeah, because, like, Loeb is saying she's up in the attic, she's kept away from, sort of, Gotham so that she wasn't put into Arkham. That's right. And we have Arkham now. It would be great if she becomes one of their first inmates. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. I would love to start seeing some of these people getting put away into Arkham Asylum. You know, was such a good setup of it. We've had Jim there as well. We've had it. Its links to um, Martha Wayne and her family. We've had the whole um, intrigue around Maroni and Falcone fighting over this district of Gotham. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice to see some um, characters from some of these episodes being put into Arkham so that, in a sense, it's like being banked, isn't it, I suppose? Mm -hmm. You can put them in there and bring them out later. And I think definitely uh, Nicole Tom is pitch perfect to me as Miriam Loeb in in her craziness and kookiness, best of the season as far as I'm concerned in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I loved her. I was absolutely enthralled by her. And I'd love to see her back again, just like you would. So let's bang her up in Arkham, and mm-hmm. uh, and maybe she'll escape and get a few more birds. Okay, maybe, maybe. Um, so my next point is actually about her captors, uh, Marge, and uh, I had to search this one up. Uh, Jude is the name given to the given to Marge's husband or partner, both of whom are taking care of Miriam in in this farmhouse, essentially. Uh, We don't get to find out much about Jude, but we get to find out a little bit about Marge. She's a former nurse from from Arkham. So uh, while Loeb didn't want to get his daughter sent to Arkham Asylum because of the stigma that would be on his family, really, and obviously the treatment that his daughter would get there, he did hire a former nurse from Arkham to take care of her in his own safe house or his own home. Um, but I love these two. I think they are fantastic. The really homely couple that Jim and Oswald and Harvey arrive at their home and they have, you know, they've laid out a full cake for them and coffee and tea and all that kind of stuff. And they have some really fun interaction with them where they're just kind of looking like caretakers for a farmhouse. Um, you find out very quickly that uh, that Marge is not just a home a homemaker. She goes and gets her gun pretty pretty quickly, yeah. uh, leading to one of the funniest scenes of the season <laughs> so far, <laughs> when Marge chases down Oswald and trips and knocks herself out. On a, uh, it was so chaotic. It was fantastic. Really, really enjoyable. Um, but yes, as the episode itself goes on, um, we have Oswald essentially bringing the two of them in um, to cover up his, his secret, which is yeah. that he was working with uh, Harvey and Jim, um, and has the two of them essentially go into battle royale, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is great. It's it f- felt like that, that similar kind of moment to uh, the Joker in the Dark Knight, where he gives the op- option of um, of two of the bodyguards for one of the uh, one of the guys from the mafia. He gives the option to the two of them to fight it out, and only one can survive. In this case, he gives the option to Marge and Jude. I'll let you get out of the city. I've got one ticket for a train. And it is a fantastic scene with Oswald sitting back, having a drink, watching 
essentially Marge destroy Jude and then she says so what time does the train leave and Oswald loads up his shotgun and said well actually I only had one shell uh, so thanks for taking care of Jude for me and then promptly kills her um, it's one of the best executed comedy moments in the scene so far I have to say I'm going to give total credit for this to, to Megan Moyston Brown she did a great job on uh, Welcome Back Jim Gordon the other episode she wrote and I think she does a great job here and the actors do a great job playing these this kind of scene so I'm hoping to see a lot more of that yeah this was this was brilliant again I love the fact that Penguin is sipping on this really expensive um, liqueur from mm. monks in Italy that only make, I don't know, 100 bottles. He slowly gets up, meanders around the bar, picks up his shotgun, whilst Marge is throttling <laughs> the hell out of Jude, her husband. And then he dispatches her. But I did love Margie, mm. uh, as she's known to, to Jude, and... Um, from the font for me this was so misery-esque as soon as she <laughs> picked up the shotgun i just thought she was like annie wilkes from misery mm-hmm. uh, it was played obviously by uh, the great kathy bates and to me you know she was psychotic homely a granny a murderer she was just like brilliant and yeah. it was just great to see and then yeah the chaotic moment where she trips and knocks herself out i mean that was just fantastic physical comedy i thought (laughs) um but i just loved how she cut this figure with a shotgun and how so much like misery with the remote farm the snow everything i just thought she was going to come out with a massive sledgehammer and start hobbling uh people yeah. and i mean but although oswald is already hobbled so uh, she wouldn't have had much work to do on him. that is true that is true <laughs> with the other leg though would be really difficult for him to get around but it was just fantastic um yeah. characters playing out here definitely yeah and unfortunately there's two we're not going to see again um john do you want to give us your next point yeah and um, mine was Angry Ed. Angry Ed. Yeah, Ed Nigma. You see that flash of anger from him um, because of the revelation from Christine Kringle that mm. she is now going out with uh, an officer from from the precinct called Tom. That's right. Flash has been banged up in prison uh, on charges. He's now been released, but whilst he has, you thought they had something going on, or at least... Flass had an interest in Christine Kringle. Yeah. You know, there was that whole episode where he's like, what are you doing hanging around with this loser? Or, you know, what's this loser doing here, speaking to you? Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, she has decided to move on to New Pastures and to Tom. And this is built up over the episode where Enigma is beginning to get it into his head that... um she does actually really fancy him. Yeah. Um, because when the devastating news comes, he's got a bouquet of flowers and greenery to give to her and and to go out on a date, hopefully, or to ask her out on a date. And she's quite blunt back to him um, to say that she's already going out on a date and it's with Tom. And afterwards, you see the flash of angry Ed Nigma. Mm-hmm. It's the first time you've seen him lose his cool on screen, at least. He's always been quite um, maybe calculated 
um, or precise about his movements. Yeah. And here we see in the middle of the precinct, Enigma smashing the bouquet of flowers into the bin and then discarding them into that bin after uh, Christine and Tom have left. He's emotional and he's angry at that point. And I love that because this is the first flash for me. Um, Along with the creepiness and the OCD-ness of him, um, maybe, you know, starting that transformation from, uh, from the Enigma the forensic police uh, officer to um, the start of the Riddler. Yeah. Um, And even just the fact that Tom uses a really weak riddle to put Enigma kind of down almost. He says, oh, you're the Riddler guy, you know. And I love the fact that Tom almost sort of tries to be friends with Enigma yeah. by giving a really weak riddle to the master of riddles. Mm-hmm. Um, here it is here. Have you met Tom? You're the guy that likes riddles. Hey, what has hands but can't clap? A clock. Correct. He's good. You're good. It's nice to meet you. Riddle man. Next time. I'm going to stump you. Yes, next time. Yeah, and it's just the expression on Enigma's face as he says, a clock. Yeah. It is just pure contempt that that riddle was even um, ushered forth in in his (laughs) direction. It's just fantastic. And I think this is a good sign of um, a bit more Riddler-esque... elements of Enigma coming out, I think. Yeah, definitely one thing I want to point out about that clip is Tom calls him Riddleman next time. I'm going to stump you, is what he says to him. Um, Riddleman. So, first person to really kind of give him a, a superhero or supervillain nickname, essentially. This has always just been Enigma in the past. Now he's gotten Riddleman as a, as a little uh, as a little tag for himself. Uh, but yeah, poor Tom. Tom's... Uh, Tom's trying his best, I think. I don't think he's really just trying to put him down. I think he's just trying out a few riddles on this guy that, uh, just to kind of have break the ice with him, really. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's not good. Poor Ed does not seem to like Tom at all. No, and nothing because of what Tom has done, but yeah. because Christine has chosen Tom above Ed. Mm-hmm. Yet he has been getting the distinct impression that she is. Um, falling for him yeah yeah exactly so derek what's your next uh, point uh, my next point is actually kind of the alfred bruce selena element of this episode just firstly alfred's not dead um no Hooray! No, no major damage just... maybe we should have put that slightly earlier on <laughs> in uh, our five point case files <laughs> <laughs> we probably should have probably should have but uh, the the uh, description he gives is just a puncture Slight bit of leakage. Um, that's why yeah. the description. He gives, I'm completely fine. Yeah, he says, you know, true grit. Yeah, absolutely. Stiff yeah. upper lip, which we knew. You know, essentially, while we were tweeting about the episode last week, just after he got uh, he got stabs, Aaron Richards sent a tweet out saying, uh, "Oh no, not Alfred," and got the response from Sean Pertwee going, "Don't worry, it's just a flesh wound." Love. <laughs> um, so Sean Pertwee did slightly spoil the fact that he was going to be still alive, but we knew. Alfred couldn't, our Alfred couldn't die. Um, but what I liked about the episode is that it brings back in Selena and she genuinely seems concerned for Bruce. 
and genuinely shows her friendship to Bruce um, by saying she will help him track down Reggie, uh, the person that did this to Alfred. Um, and then Bruce's reaction, I thought, was really telling. I thought it was a really good moment for him. Uh, and again, once again, uh, David Mazus carries the scene really, really well, where he tells her, I'm not going to put anybody else in danger. I'm going to go and do this myself. Such a Batman moment and a motif that will carry on throughout his life, even when he's surrounded by Batgirl and Robin and Nightwing and all the Bat family, as they call them. Um, he will always say, I want to do these things myself. Anything personally connected to him, he will always push everybody away around him and say he wants to do it himself so he doesn't put anybody else in harm's way. So I thought it was a really good indicator here that this is how he's going to treat Selina, uh, even though she does want to help him. Yeah, and he's also made the connection um, that Reggie, yeah, okay, he made it look as though he was just stealing stuff, but he knows that some of the files that he has built up over the course of his own investigation of his parents' murder have gone missing. Mm -hmm. And he links that then that Reggie has stolen some of of these files, but that it must be connected to what's going on in Wayne Enterprises. So again, it it shows his his knack for investigation, but also his intelligence, his, his, his reasoning. And that's a really important element of what Bruce Wayne will become um, as he grows up as well. That's right. I did also like the the silence. The and again, this is another thing that will probably grow and grow uh, between Alfred and, and Bruce uh, as they become and lead towards becoming Alfred and Batman uh, as this this double act uh, as this duo as well. Mm-hmm. Just that they don't give up Reggie. They both want to deal with it. I mean. Mm-hmm. Alfred actually tries to get up. He un- hit, he he unplugs himself from all the monitors and, and and all the needles that are going into him to give him fluids. You know, he tries to go up and go after Reggie, and he does say to Bruce, "If anyone's going to sort him out, it will be me. Don't set cops on your mates." It, yeah. It's this kind of honor uh, that Alfred has that if anyone's going to bring justice um, and bring him to heel. It's going to be him, not Jim Gordon. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting little um, point, I think, for the for the character. And it also that silence that occurs when Jim is there in the hospital room, and and they don't give up Reggie is telling as well. I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, really good scenes there with the two with the two of them. So, John, what's your final point? Mine is Harvey Dent. We we see Harvey Dent come back. Um, it's only a minor point, and it's mm-hmm. quite a, a little point here. But you know, Harvey Dent is enrolled by Jim Gordon to 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 begin to investigate the reasons for why Flass was released, and in particular, to look at the role of Commissioner Loeb here. Yeah. And it was quite nice to see Harvey Dent um, back in Gotham, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest. And I, I love the the urgency to Jim's pursuit with Harvey Dent and the trouble that they get into with um, Shilu, where Grig, Detective Grig, they think he's giving up Commissioner Loeb when, in fact, he's essentially sending them into a trap. It, yeah. it shows the... The, the the stretch of Loeb's influence. And I love then as well that this all leads to the redemption of Harvey by coming in a bit like the MCU did um, to mm. save Jim, uh, crashing through the gates to protect 
um, and save Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent from a load of of, of workers at the um, the drug house or the laundering house, mm-hmm. you know, fronted by a Chinese restaurant at the the Chinese mafia, um, trying to kill them with knives after they've been set up by Griggs. Yeah, and I, it, what ensues then is where kind of Harvey Dent is told by Harvey Bullock that you know you shouldn't really be here. You know, you're in way too deep. Um, and you need to leave this essentially to Jim and myself. Yeah. Um, you can't handle this. So I love that. I thought it was a nice little way of just keeping the character on the boil, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily having to, him having to do anything too much. So it'd be interesting to see whether Harvey Dent does anything more sort of in relation to investigating Commissioner Lowe by yeah. keeping it on his turf. Um, but despite all that, and despite me saying that, we do find that Jim thinks of Commissioner Loeb as better the devil you know. Yeah. For him now, he has Loeb in his own pocket because he knows Loeb's secret in the same way that Loeb has been doing that for everyone else. Yeah. And so he probably won't, I don't think, Harvey Dent. I don't think he will necessarily try and bring Commissioner Loeb down. Mm-hmm. But it'd be interesting to see how he's worked in to future episodes and how his storyline uh, will will slowly um, simmer away uh, in the background of, of the the episodes, the remaining episodes of season one, but also maybe into season two. Yep. In the same way that I think both the Penguin and Ed Nigma have been really good um, characters, bad characters that we all know what's coming, but how they've just kept them sort of on the simmer. Yeah, I think the other, um, as I've mentioned them, um, this is like the seventh episode since um, a member of the MCU has last been yeah. on Gotham. I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was um, episode 11 and it was uh, Detective Rennie Montoya mm-hmm. who was um, there um, breaking up with uh, Barbara Keane. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen them at all now. And so I think it's seven episodes at this stage. Yeah, well, it is. I yeah. can do maths. Um, <laughs> well <done>. Yeah. <laughs> 18 minus 11 is seven, everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of slightly worrying to me now. And yeah. I think maybe um, we need to see or know what's happened um, to them. I think it's a bit odd that they haven't been on the screen at all in technically seven hours worth of Gotham after having been fairly regular reoccurring characters Mm -hmm. and central in some cases to an episode um, and indeed to one of the big uh, love triangles of of Jim, Barbara, and then obviously Renny Montoya. Um, I would love to know where they have gone and why that might be the case because I do think that they were really good characters. I also do think that it was a really good way of expanding the Gotham universe and and canon uh, from the comics into TV uh, through the GCPD and and other units like the MCU. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it's seven episodes now without seeing them, and um, I'd really like to see them back. Yeah, definitely. Like, while I do enjoy seeing Nicholas D'Agosto's Harvey Dent, I think he's he's a character that you need to keep exploring, keep making sure that everybody's aware that himself and Jim are developing a relationship and developing a friendship and that they know each other for a long time. Um, I think that's hugely important. It would have been just as good in this particular episode to have Harvey and Jim 
going in to see Shi Lu behind the Chinese restaurant and the MCU coming in because they happen to be investigating a drug ring um, and saving Jim and Harvey, you know, just to keep those characters alive a bit. Um, it's going to seem weird if they do turn back up in episode 20 or 21 or 22. It's going to seem weird now. You've had almost 10 episodes of that stage where they haven't been been appearing. So you're going to have to re-explain who the MCU are if you want to have them turn up again. So it's a bit of a pity. I have a feeling we may not see them again. And that would be that would be completely unfair to the two quite major characters from the comic book. And a big reason why a lot of people did tune into the show, or a lot of, let me not say a lot of people, a lot of very uh, in-depth comic fans tuned into the show to see what they do with these two characters. Um, and it's unfortunate that we lost them. I mean, the only thing I, at the moment that, you know, I'm holding on to hope, I always do, I'm an eternal optimist, mm-hmm. is that these two off-screen are deep undercover, maybe something to do with investigating Wayne Enterprises. They've got to be under the radar, maybe. and maybe, you know, they they crop up towards the end in relation to the storyline with Bruce and Wayne Enterprises where they're keeping an eye on Bruce um, or even into season two, if maybe we don't see them from now on, that it's explained in a way that seems appropriate yeah. and real for the work that they have to do, which is ultimately major crimes, which could mean infiltration yeah. and taking a cover. Um, that's the only thing to me now at this stage that would kind of make sense, actually. Um, otherwise, as you say, they show up and um, you've had a large amount of time passing where any sizable screen presence has yeah. occurred. And you're right, the danger comes that you have to reintroduce them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I'm still positive. It certainly um, links to a prediction that um, Chris, who joins us on Defenders TV podcast, mentioned mm-hmm. in our uh, European Roundtable Roundup of the first 10 episodes mm-hmm. he thought that they would potentially be quite divisive characters possibly for an audience mm-hmm. certainly given uh, maybe complications um, surrounding sort of the the breakup of, of Jim and Barbara possibly yeah. and all that um, the TV I, should be complicated and TV should be challenging it doesn't excuse getting rid of two major characters because it was complicated for the audience it's, I completely you know, it's a late enough time slot there's intelligent people watching this show. They can work out a better way to deal with those two characters than what's happened to them. And it is unfortunate that we that they've been off the scene for so many episodes so far. Hopefully, they're going to come back, and hopefully, yeah. we'll see we'll see them play a bigger part as we go on. Touch wood, fingers crossed, legs crossed, toes crossed, stroke the rabbit's foot, etc., etc. So, Derek, what's your final point? Um, very small point. Most of the things we've we've already talked about, but just a very small point that essentially Jim has talked about. Um, you know, obviously that he is an incor- incorruptible cop. What happens at the end of the episode? He essentially blackmails Loeb to make him the GCPD union leader, um, which I thought was quite interesting. It's kind of like blackmail is acceptable as long as the person person you're doing it to is a bad guy, and um, that's what it seems like. He's essentially saying to him. Well, now I know your secret. Give me the files on all of the GCPD officers. Loeb says no. He gives him Harvey's files. So Harvey's now off the hook. The rest of the GCPD officers aren't. But 
Jim essentially takes the uh, leadership of the GCPD union. So he's kind of blackmailing. So he's kind of done a little bit of a shady deal there. Um, but I like that Jim is a little bit of a grey character occasionally, not just black and white. So that's that's just one element I pulled out from it. Yeah, no, I, I like that um, aspect too. It would have been interesting if he had said to have the files for internal affairs to, to look at mm. in case he needed to. But obviously that would implicate um, Harvey Bullock into a, a murder. So... It, it, it's strange then as well that then Jim just takes Harvey's, which is then is that is he going to burn it so that Harvey is kind of released from that mm-hmm. that emotional baggage, um, whereas all the others um, aren't because Harvey does say that half of the cops in the GCPD have got files right. um, on them. What a way I, to clean up the GCPD for Jim! It would have been pretty easy. Okay, well these guys here to the left, these guys here, to the right, I'm becoming commissioner, and off you go. <laughs> but again, I love the grey area yeah. um, in that, you know, we had Jim Gordon talk about not wanting to do any kind of deals or any um, business with Oswald Cobblepot, and what does he have to do? What what forces his hand in this episode but um, to... Again, better the devil you know. He goes to Oswald um, and and asks him to find out um, information. He asks him for a favour. And what does Oswald get back in return? The promise of five minutes with all the files. Okay, they don't turn out to be actually at the farm. Mm -hmm. um, And we still don't know where they're kept, but not at the farm. But also to ask for a favour at a future date from Jim. Gordon. That's right. That's right. So what is Oswald going to ask? I mean, to me, this just does sound like a get out of jail um, card in Monopoly for mm-hmm. Oswald. Fair plays to Oswald, um, you know, because uh, Jim has kind of put him down as well. He said, "I'm not coming to your opening of Oswald's. That's right. I, I'm not going to have any part to to play with you." But he does keep coming on back to Oswald because Oswald is a friend mm-hmm. and Oswald is a good snitch. Yeah. And in the comics, you know, um, some of the storylines written on Oswald is that he is a cop, you know, is a snitch for the cops. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really good little dynamic between uh, the two of them. And it also, again, as you say, with the blackmail of Commissioner Lou. It keeps the grayness about Jim Gordon as well, yeah. which is great. Yeah, definitely. But uh, you're right. That's one thing I definitely want to know. What is Oswald going to ask of Jim in future? I certainly wouldn't give him any favor uh, that he could possibly ask for uh, as a as a bargaining chip at any at, at any time. Uh, now Oswald has got something over Jim. So yeah, tough. So then, um, I think that's the end of our discussion on this episode. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got a couple pot. Got any other notes? I think um, I am all uh, used up with the with my notes. I know we've got a bit of news to talk about. Have you got any other notes on this episode? Um, nothing really that stood out to me. Uh, additionally, on this episode, we're starting to wind down now. We've only got about four episodes left, so make sure you send us your feedback on any future episodes or anything you thought so far during the season to feedback at GothamTVPodcast.com. Fascinating. Fascinating. So we have a little piece of feedback this week uh, from Doug Green, who came into our Twitter account. So Doug asks, the Scarecrows at the end of the episode Scarecrow, uh, are they up to the Doctor Who standard? Are they like Doctor Who monsters? Do you, what do you think? 
I think so. I think the really scary monsters that you can get in Doctor Who um, most definitely. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing, though, that Doctor Who still can do better than any other show are quietly subtle and menacing monsters. So I'm thinking of the Weeping Angels. Mm -hmm. On the face of it, there is nothing to them, but the concept of them is absolutely deadly. I think of the Christmas special in 2014 where it mixed aliens um, and razor heads with kind of Father Christmas. Yeah. And again, not what I was expecting from all of the trailers uh, leading up to yeah. uh, that episode, which seemed to be, oh no, it's got Father Christmas in it. How is it going to work? And I love Nick Frost as well. I mean, Nick Frost plays Santa Claus. is really, really well done. Mm -hmm. um, I think with Doctor Who, when it's done right, I think they can do monsters and concepts of monsters that really no other show really gets to be able to do, not on such um, a frequent basis. And yeah. maybe that's part of it. It's just the frequency of the new ideas. I always remember the other Stephen Moffat monster, the, the darkness in the library, mm. where you have then the the skeletons walking around in spacesuits. Again, mm -hmm. just pretty um, terrifying and menacing, but not as such massively scary yeah but when they do big scary monsters i thought the scarecrow at the end uh climbing up over jonathan crane's bed that was brilliant mm -hmm. and it's another example of really good cg which That's unfortunately true. the office manager uh, attached to um sally from the, the nightmare <laughs> before christmas um wasn't in this case yeah. um unfortunately in this episode Everyone has a couple pot, yeah. of which I think mine's flared up again, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks very much for the feedback, Doug. So if you want to send us your feedback, please send an email to feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, you could be in with a chance of winning a really cool prize. So uh, thanks very much for the feedback. Yeah, remember as well, you can listen to us and catch us on gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes. You can also um, search for us on Stitcher or Player FM or any other good podcast catcher. Just search Gotham TV Podcast. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at Gotham TV Podcast. Um, please search and you can leave comments and thoughts there. But I think with that, we can move on to the news. So we've got two items of news this week. Um, we have the news that Frank Miller is going to return to the Dark Knight Returns series uh, and to Batman with a comic series and graphic novel entitled Master Race. Yes, yes. I'm really excited about this one. I'm, I'm, I'm a big Frank Miller fan and a huge fan of the Dark Knight Returns the one sequel that they did have to, to Dark Knight Returns uh, wasn't, unfortunately, up to the standard of that book, but they've left it a good long time now to kind of come up with a really good idea for the Master Race, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what they did. Frank Miller really is, to me, one of the quintessential Batman authors. Um, he also has written Daredevil, which is uh, which is the show we're talking about over on Defenders TV podcast. 
Um, and I've loved his work on there. I've also loved some of the other books that he's done. So I'm really excited to see what he does uh, coming into the a, a newly refreshed look at the Dark Knight universe, I suppose. Um, there was some confusion, which we noticed on uh, when we saw these the news going up. There was some confusion that this would be a sequel to the movie The Dark Knight Rises, that Frank Miller would be writing the character played by Christian Bale in the film for some reason. Don't understand where this came from. Uh, I presume people, there's there's a lot of people that may not have read comic books or may not know who Frank Miller is. Um, he's the quintessential Batman author, as I said. He's the one that brought the darkness to him in the 80s and uh, and pretty much with the Dark Knight Returns books. So I'm really excited to hear what he said, what he does. Yeah, I think for that reason, um, I'm quite excited to see what he uh, writes um, in, in this series of comics and, and hopefully it'll be collected again into another classic graphic novel but i mean you know he's been the um source of christopher uh, and jonathan nolan for some of their aspects that they have taken of batman and put into their films mm -hmm. there's obviously a nice big chunky meaty hint of it in the forthcoming <laughs> uh zack snyder movie um batman versus superman the dawn of justice and right. um, because you know we have uh meatball batman there <laughs> well i mean Poor just ben like Affleck. chunky like i mean you know he's complete yeah older chunky uh meathead which is portrayed um in, in frank miller's um comics mm -hmm. and the dark knight returns so so well yeah. i mean this idea that uh you have that older batman who's kind of creaking it's a great concept. Mm -hmm. I think they may have taken it a little far with Batman 100, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, I do think um, he's been such an influence to other uh, comic book writers. He's been an influence and a source for Batman uh, in in the movies as well that I'm really looking forward to, to what he brings us. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. The other news this week was in celebration of the 75th anniversary of the Joker, which uh, we have been talking about for a while. Uh, this is the 75th year since the character of Joker appeared in comic books. And as a little, uh, I suppose, as a little present for all of us Joker fans out here, David Ayers uh, did tweet out a photograph of a very well-known character played by a Oscar-winning actor. Um John? Musician. Musician, yes. It was the new 30 Seconds to Mars poster. <laughs> yes, he's probably had a few extra tattoos added, though, since the last time I saw him. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, there was Jared Leto as the Joker. That's right. What did you think? Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, very different take. Liked it? Hated it? Loved it? Not bothered? I Want I... to wait till he we see the full thing on the film? Uh, I can't wait to see Jared Leto's take on the character. Uh, really can't. I really can't wait to see him in motion and see him take on the character. Jared Leto is a great actor, as evidenced by his performance that won him the Oscar. You know, he's he's fantastic as an actor and doesn't act often enough. Um, an image of him as the Joker covered in tattoos that say ha 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 and have the smiley face on them looks a little much from the tattoos. But it's a static photograph. I'll never judge a film by a static photograph. Exactly. And um, the one thing that I did say when I was when I was talking about it with my friends is that I do feel that this this version of the Joker probably won't appear very much in the film. I think he he will probably be a very small minor point in this film, setting him up for a future film uh, where he's the lead character, a future Batman film, which we which has been mooted with 
uh, Ben Affleck playing Batman versus Jared Leto's Joker. Um, but I think he looks pretty cool. He does look pretty cool. It's just when you start to analyze the tattoos that are on his body, they seem odd. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the concept of the tattoos on the body, given he may be in prison or he may be in Arkham Asylum. You think of uh, the Russian tattoos that you get, that idea. But ha, 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 yeah. maybe a bit too much. Even smiley face, I mean, a bigger motorcon on the side of your arm <laughs> it, it is slightly strange. Although I did hear an interesting um, thing, which was the smile on his hand. Mm -hmm. He could put his hand over his mouth uh -huh. and it would look like the classic Joker. And, and given his teeth are very kind of grey and look rotten, yeah. that could be a really good concept. I like the idea of that. Interesting, and I wish again, listeners, that we had a uh, we had a video podcast because John continually covered his mouth through most of that. <laughs> what he was saying it looked pretty cool. I like the color in the hair and in mm -hmm. the in the glove, the the flash of purple and the green. Nice little nods. Um, maybe he didn't need so many tattoos, but I could see where he could get them from. Oh, and yeah. ultimately, like you say, don't judge uh, a book by its cover, and literally do not judge a film by um, a single photo. Absolutely. It, it really, it's difficult to do that, to say that you're going to hate the character of the Joker um, or dislike Jared Leto's performance because of that one photo. And indeed, think of the um, response to Heath Ledger Absolutely. as well and what he ultimately has become to the canon of this great, great bad guy the, the counterpoint to Batman. Mm -hmm. I did also see um, recently um, it written that The Killing Joke, because there has been that other picture released of Jared Leto um, in the pose of the Joker that you see on the front of Killing The Killing Joke by yeah. Alan Moore. Holding the camera and pointing it at the reader mm -hmm. uh, with the big grin on his face. And I did see written that apparently that was a divisive graphic novel at the time, but I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of turning the Joker, who was the funny character that you could give your kids the book of the book of Batman that had the Joker in it, because it's a funny, a funny novel or a funny comic book. Um, Killing Joke turned that into the really brutal Joker that we see now that kills all around him uh, and slaughters all around him and cuts and slices all around him. Um, that's what Killing Joke did. It was quite a, That's why it was a decisive book, because it was for adults and not for kids. And so basically we see throughout the creation of all of these characters with Joker, mm -hmm. even with Batman, along these steps of evolution of the character and development, there's always been that moment where it's been split. And I do think that, again, this could be another one of those moments yeah. that takes the Joker into a, a different area. Um, and a different way of being viewed. So it's exciting. That's yeah. how I see it. You certainly don't get to 75 years old and look like Jared Leto without taking, making a few changes. I uh, thought he was 175. <laughs> potentially. Potentially. Um, oh, the Joker, not Jared Leto. <laughs> and with that, I think we'll leave it for this week. Next week, we're back with episode 19 of Gotham, which is Beasts of Prey, starring Milo Ventimiglia, uh, who... I never knew his surname before. I just know him as the main actor from Heroes first season. Uh, he's going to be playing a character called the Ogre. I'm really looking forward to this one now. No, I'm looking forward to, to this one as well, definitely. 
Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And speak to you next week. Bye. Because I like birds. Thank you.